Hello, I'm Lawrence Woodruff, and I recently changed the filter of my dehumidifier. And I'm Michael Ralph, and I will be having twins in 36 hours. Professional development should not be restricted to the workday. This is our personal yet professional dialogue. So grab a seat, grab a glass, and join us. We will discuss that we might improve. Today, we are drinking Boulevard Tough Kitty Milk Stout. This is a seasonal uh, that you have provided on time. That's exciting. Yeah. Um, uh, it's got a vaguely Halloween theme with a black cat on the label. Uh, I don't know if that's uh, really intentional for to be Halloween, but it is timely. I'm excited to be back together with you, not only because this is my last opportunity to be working without small humans in the house, but also because... We are making some changes to the format of the show to be responsive to all of your feedback. Uh, and that means we're going to shuffle some things around, but we are still starting with a big picture idea. What is today's big picture idea? I don't know. <laughs> um, and that's pretty much how I felt when I finished reading the article. I believe the big picture we are discussing today is what role does sequencing play for a curriculum in a classroom? We want students to understand the big picture. I taught biology for a long time, and biology is an interconnected web of complex ideas, and they don't exist in silos, and that's true for all sorts of curricula. We don't want students to know Monday separate from Wednesday, separate from next month, but that's hard to do. So how do we deal with this idea of coherence? Students seeing connections and relationships between the big picture ideas that we work on all semester. So I started by reading the first article, Transforming the Economics Curriculum by Integrating Threshold Concepts by, um, no. Is that one person? Oh, I thought it was two. Karuna Ratne. Yeah, it is. Yeah, there's no and in there. Yeah, there's no and nor comma. I inserted the comma myself in my brain. Belief consistent interpretation of ambiguous evidence. That's something that I shared on Twitter like yesterday. <laughs> uh, yeah, yeah. Na their names have two parts and sometimes a middle initial. The end. I'm done. Okay, so let's try this again. The first article I read in preparation for today was Transforming the Economics Curriculum by Integrating Threshold Concepts by Karun Naratne, Breyer, and Wood. And that article actually felt like it was at odds with the next article that I read, which was... Uh, we're comparing that with Looking for Coherence in the Science Curriculum by Skiorski. And there's probably other names on that. Hammer. Uh, and so, by the time I finished reading those, because I read them, I juxtaposed them. I read one and then following the other. I was like, I feel good and bad about both of these articles. So <laughs> I'm I, really swimming in a lot of... Uh, eh, ambivalence and uh, disequilibrium as I'm trying to synthesize the value uh, that I'm finding between the two because they both have it. Which, from a meta standpoint, I think is doing it correctly. <laughs> We've got this framing idea and we're not sure how these parts fit together and trying to make meaning out of that for yourself is our take-home should. So how do we get there? Uh, yeah, so it, it was definitely engaging. It was definitely an engaging uh, preparation time. So let's do these one at a time before we start enmeshing them together. 
The first article, the economics curriculum article, is looking at redesigning a university curriculum for an economics course where most of the students, that is the only class they take, related to economics before they graduate. So it's one of the really big classes with a great many students sitting in lecture. And it was typical in all the ways you may imagine as far as structure and content and sequencing. And they approached that course and said, is there some way that we can reorganize the content without changing in uh, major ways the what the content is or how it's delivered, but can we manipulate the sequencing to make the big ideas of economics stand out more meaningfully for the students? They coined the term threshold concept. In their framework, that meant a concept that was so fundamental to economics that it's influenced multiple topics in multiple scenarios throughout the practice of economics and as such it should be a focus of individuals that are attempting to integrate themselves into that practice however they they had found that not only at this particular university but in many courses that these threshold concepts that they defined weren't really a central figure in the curriculum. Instead, they were uh, sort of adjacent to the primary concepts of the curriculum and rarely integrated as uh, central, central points. And let's get some clarity on what we're talking about. Uh, for the economists in the room, we're talking about economic models, opportunity cost, marginal analysis, elasticity, welfare and efficiency, uh, the central big themes that we want to emerge from understanding of individual concepts and discussions in the economics curriculum. So what might be some analogs in other disciplines? <laughs> uh, well, of course, uh, my experience is primarily in biology. So when I think of major critical concepts uh, that uh, should be foundational in biology, I'm thinking central dogma and I'm thinking uh, species interdependence and that I'm I'm thinking of uh, systems uh, analysis and hierarchical structures. Yeah, that's pretty good. I'm going to flex my history endorsement here and <laughs> let's talk about some social studies because I think that class is an important conversation to be had across time periods and across cultures. And I think that uh, government roles in society is an important conversation to be had across time periods and across cultures. I think that theology and religion and, or mysticism, depending on the time period and the culture, is another conversation that needs to be had in all sorts of um, all sorts of topics. You got some. You got some literature. Use some language arts. Okay. <laughs> um, theme. Imagery, narrative, voice, uh, language, these are concepts that transcend however the communication mode is, be it uh, novel, uh, nonfiction, or poetry, or uh, cinematics for that matter. All of those uh, ideas come into play when you're trying to communicate uh, any kind of idea. Yeah. Because our goal as a teacher is not to communicate to students that they can read a particular graph about a particular economic trend on this day. That's not, our, that's not the purpose of at least this particular course. The purpose is to make connections across big ideas. So how do we help students see those connections? And for this study, they were trying to change the sequencing so that those ideas came out and were more visible. How'd they do? 
Well, according to the data, they did well. They essentially assessed two ways. They assessed how did the students essentially feel about the course, uh, and they gave them surveys uh, once sort of a... Well, let me back up a little bit. The comp comparisons were made over two years. I think the first year was 2013, and then this, the second year of comparison was 2015. And they gave a survey at the end of both of those courses asking the students how they felt about it. In addition to that, they compared the grades, the straight grade comparison of the content uh, between those two years regarding how they did uh, with the economics concept. And they uh, report significant improvements for both of those factors. Yeah, the student survey responses are the typical course evaluations and they saw uh, it was a meaningful, it was a statistically significant increase, but it was an increase of three tenths of a, of a point on a five point scale across the, the assessed um, measures of student satisfaction. So we're not talking about change in the universe, but it was a statistically significant change as reported by the authors. And for the grades, what they saw was a considerable percent increase in what we would colloquially refer to as an A, although it in there this was a UK study, so a high distinction was the category that they were describing. Uh, so a considerable, a 50% increase in the top marks and an equally considerable decrease in the failure categories and a nominal, a not meaningful uh, change in the middle grades. So we failed fewer students and we had a more students at the top levels of achievement. Less students fail and more students get A's sounds good to everybody, uh, especially if we assume that these assessments were valid. Mm -hmm. uh, so that, that sounds great. We would all want to go for that. So then the question is, okay, they resequenced. How did they resequence? What decisions did they make when they resequenced? And just because they were able to do it in an economy in an economy course, what does that mean for me in a biology class or anyone in any course? So this is a, an important question as we look at departmental decisions that get made, especially folks who have uh, have control over what happens in other people's classrooms, is, is that can this problem be solved? Is there an answer for the optimal sequence of topics in a course? And we are all beholden to observe and follow that sequence year over year. I think that's what was implied by this data is a resequencing without meaningful changes in delivery or content improve performance. And that makes sense to me. That narrative fits together in my head of making the threshold concepts, making the big ideas stand out for students matters. So is it just a game of choosing the optimal content sequence and then that, that problem is solved and no further changes occur? Is that, is that what's implied by this study? This calls back to some of the conversation that we had in 001, our very first episode. We looked at another piece of literature that looked at the difference in sequencing between genetics and evolution, and we saw that there was one sequence that was superior. So this seems to be another data point suggesting this trend of optimal sequencing. So is that, is that the message? Is that our should, that there is a solvable optimal sequence? I'm not sure that they were suggesting that there's a Plato world of ideals ideals sequence that is the answer and that we are all struggling through the darkness trying to recreate that answer here in the real world. I don't think that's the actual answer because one of the things that they did do, which was slightly changed in the practice, is they altered some of their assignments during the course of the 
program so that students had greater opportunities to apply these big ideas as they were as they were struggling with the lessons as opposed to having the big ideas explained relevant to some other phenomenon that was the topic of the lesson it was the inviting the students to struggle through it that i think was the contributing factor. One of the things that they noted was that restructuring provided students the opportunity to discover questions that were then timely answered in the subsequent lectures. So even though they didn't revolutionize the practice that they were doing in their lecture delivery, they made subtle changements to some of the assignments and questions that the students were doing outside of class that reoriented students to build on the information they had in subsequent classes. And to be crystal clear, those changes did not alter the relative rigor of the expectations. And that was validated by external observers who confirmed this is not becoming more challenging. This is not becoming less challenging. So we are not talking about changes in difficulty. We're just talking about changes in the freedom afforded to students and the responsiveness to how students make choices in the face of that freedom. And I think that gets at the core of what the take home is going to be from this conversation is students need to understand the big ideas. That's that is a statement of reality. So how can we help them understand it? Well, a curriculum that is not responsive at all to big ideas is inferior to a sequencing that is responsive to big ideas. That's what we actually saw happen in this study, is the sequencing didn't make any sense and was not made clear to the students. Well, making it clear to the students is better. That's what we currently know. But we don't have enough uh, enough information to extrapolate it all the way to that to that worst case scenario, I think, of removing teacher uh, authority to make those choices. We just know understanding big ideas more is better. And that comes from the very first sentence in this paper where they clear, excuse me, the second sentence in this paper, where they clarified the purpose of this redesign is to be more responsive to the breadth of student experience sitting in their room, which is increasing. That is differentiation, ladies and gentlemen. We have to be responsive to the varying needs of our students, and that's getting to be a bigger deal every year. So if we're responding to the problem of dealing with different student needs, that necessarily is not going to be a static need over time. So what do we do about having to be more, more responsive to a moving target? Differentiation or changing the experience to meet the needs of a student is intuitive when you have a class of one. If you are a private tutor and you have one student, you can exactly hear what they need and challenge uh, where they're at and support them in their own growth. And it becomes more difficult the more students you have in that classroom. But the idea that this is about differentiation again challenges the notion that there is one correct sequence because the body of students that you have is changing from year to year. And so assuming that a one-size-fits-all answer is always going to work, I figured it out this year, 2015, I figured out economics, and now I can teach this way for the next 45 years, is a fallacy. Because the students that that economics professor are going to have 20 years from now are not the same students that they have today. Furthermore, uh, as class size gets higher, the ability to differentiate becomes more challenging, and they straight up said this was essentially a class size of 1,400 a semester. This was a highly enrolled primary 
course for many of the programs and majors at this university. So it has huge enrollment numbers. And so the question is, how do you differentiate for 1,400 students? And so you have to differentiate at a high level, a large level, which is what this responsive sequencing is about. One of the quotes in this article that stuck with me that I'm still mulling over uh, is that curricula in the social sciences has an impact on the way practitioners interact with and influence the world around them, whereas in the natural sciences, the curriculum does not ultimately change the way nature itself functions. They made this example uh, and cited, uh, they, they cited an example to support that where uh, one, uh, one analyzed that the failure of U.S. car manufacturers was in part due to management trained under a curricula of content who had not been trained in transferable skills to adapt to new situations uh, being presented by the Japanese and German methods of doing automotive business. I thought that was interesting as someone who is a teacher of the natural sciences. Part of me said, yeah, that makes a lot of sense. But another part of me said, no, there's something more here because though the, the science curriculum, the way nature works isn't being changed, the way individuals participate in science is changed and is influenced by the curriculum. Putting me in that space was very interesting for this article because it was a, I immediately followed reading this article with another article called Looking for Coherence in Science Curriculum by Sikorsky and Hammer. The authors of Looking for Coherence were basically having the same conversation that we're having right now and arrived at a well-cited conclusion that appears early in their paper that attempts to achieve cognitive coherence through curricular coherence have demonstrated only limited success, several citations. And so what that means is even the study that we were considering a moment ago, we mentioned that grades went up, but they weren't revolutionized. Not every student passed. Not every student graduated with high distinction from this course. And so why is it that we can't seem to find this perfect sequencing of topics that can be done with this problem and we can move on to something else in education? And where they arrived was that uh, the carefully constructed instructional sequences designed by us don't appear to help students see science as something that makes sense. So transitioning to the natural sciences domain, but talking about the same topic, what it looks like is even the most carefully designed and research-supported sequences don't seem to improve students' conceptual understanding of the source material. And in fact, and they mentioned this as well, I'm basically just reading the, the introduction to you, uh, it actually makes things worse, leaving their attitudes worse than they were in the previous conditions. And that's supported with, I thought, some really compelling data is in, uh, in the natural sciences in particular, the next generation science standards came out and are really emphasizing that move to conceptual understanding and coherence uh, across the entire science curriculum. And they found that only 24% of U.S. fourth grade teachers and 21% of eighth grade teachers report emphasizing scientific investigation in at least half of their lessons. So even though NGSS, which is the prevailing sentiment of the standards across most of the states by this point, uh, is really emphasizing this move to coherence across the curriculum, it's not 
happening. These authors made a distinction between uh, communicating coherence and seeking coherence, and that this, the distinction is meaningful, uh, and that uh, science teachers and uh, can can we can make a mistake, and that mistake is assuming that uh, reported coherence is the same thing as understanding a topic. And it's very easy to fall into this mistake because in the science, in the practice of science, scientists do look at an idea, a proposed explanation, and say, in what ways does this fit with what we already know and what ways does it not? And then they judge it based on how well it explains and fits with the rest of the scientific knowledge that we know. And they call that coherence and they applaud coherence for ideas with, gr uh, when there are competing ideas, the idea with greater coherence is the one that has the most support and is, and is is applauded and celebrated and further investigated. So as teachers, as lovers of science, our framework, our mindset is to pursue that particular endeavor. But in doing so, we deny the students the opportunity to seek coherence themselves. And as we have discussed in what double O was it where we discussed, um, uh, I don't think it was one, what double O was where we discussed um, constructivism? And oh. in 002, we know that individuals are building, for understanding, they are building their own schema. That means they have to seek coherence of their own schema. Presenting a schema to a student does not yield robust learning experiences, whereas giving them the opportunity to create their own schema is the only way that they can have those robust students. So though this paper consistently referred to it as student coherence seeking, it's really individual schema development that they're referring to the entire time during the course of that paper. Presenting a schema, presenting coherence, is not effective if you are denying the students the opportunities to create their own. And they introduced a term that, oh my gosh, I loved it and I hated it and it's going to be in the back of my mind and it's going to be something to be aware of and that is a term that I love and hate narrative seduction. They use the phrase narrative seduction. Narrative seduction can undermine student coherence seeking. And they they describe this consequence where if, if a teacher or or uh, any anyone providing an experience creates a narrative that is so compelling, the students will simply accept it and never engage in challenging it in order to create understanding. They will just be lulled by the beauty of the schema. So if we actually succeed in reaching the platonic ideal sequence and execute it flawlessly, we will have done, and they accept it, and they just swallow it down and love it and hug it and yearn for it, then we have still denied them the opportunity to seek coherence and we have underserved them and underprepared them for applying these concepts in novel circumstances. Narrative seduction, my friends, is the silent enemy. What's really hard about this is the change that we are moving towards to escape narrative, narrative seduction 
is one that will be painful for us. Let's consider in a language arts classroom, we are going to be looking at Animal Farm because I want them to develop understanding of fascism as a theme. That's just that's a thing that I want my students to explore. And man, Animal Farm is, to the point of being on the nose, a really good example of that story. And so I can paint a beautiful picture for my students of the, the allegory and how the analogies line up and exactly where the examples are and where the transitions occur and how they map onto real events. And man, that's going to sing. That's going to look beautiful and it's going to be visible to even novice learners to the point that if I presented them a second book that also has fascism as a theme, if I have presented that schema to them wholesale, they will not be able to engage with that new book in meaningful ways because they haven't explored any understanding in the context of the first book. And so what's difficult about this is we have to hand them Animal Farm and say, what's going on here, guys? And then we have to just we have to go where they want to go. And I can provide feedback and I can provide reinforcement for positive development. And I can provide uh, structure and external sources where they can try to build their own understanding. But what will happen is we're not going to talk about all the aspects of fascism that are in that book. They will not all come up because they're novices and they don't have experience analyzing this kind of topic yet. And so conversations that I got to lead as a teacher in previous years will not occur when I turn control of the discussion over to the students. And that hurts, ladies and gentlemen. That's unpleasant for us because our schema is not getting activated as much as it used to. And that's unpleasant for us. To crystallize that scenario into meaningful uh, bits, students should be presented with the opportunities to create their own models, choose between competing models, and address the gaps in their own models. So if we continue with the Animal Farm uh, narrative, what is this book about? Let's compare what each of us think this book is about and choose which who, who has done a better job of characterizing what this book is about. And now, how can we improve these proposed models about what this book is about? Those discussions where students are asked those questions directly, and that's not, I mean, that's just the animal farm discussion. That's also true in biology, and that's also true in chemistry, and that's also true in economics. What is going on here? What, what is the model that you generate for what is going on there? Let's compare it to other models that have been generated about what's going on here. And now let's improve the models that, that are suggesting what's going on here. Those ideas where the students are responding are critical for the students building coherence and therefore their own schema of understanding in any topic. One of the take-home messages that is still resonating with me from the Sikorsky and Hammer article is that you cannot fix science education with a teacher-proof curriculum. There may be bad circumstances that you can improve with, with a teacher-proof curriculum, but that will still lead to students not developing robust understandings. Curriculum cannot do the work of sense-making, and teachers make the mistake of um, assuming memorized storylines told by students indicates that the students understand the concepts. So students need to guide the creation of coherence, not the teachers.
And from a broader perspective, if we're talking about shoulds, that also translates to larger structures of organizations. So if I'm leading a department of six teachers, in order for the teachers to be responsive to their student needs, I have to allow the teachers the autonomy to explore each of those big picture ideas as they see appropriate. Because I see value in having some sort of um, alignment throughout a department when we're all teaching the same course. It is not unreasonable that biology means similar things between teachers. But if I am prescribing to all of my teachers, here's what you do Monday, here's what you do Tuesday, I am necessarily forbidding them from allowing their students to build coherence. So we have to turn over some autonomy and some authority to the teachers to say, we are going to prioritize membrane structure. And that's something that we all need to have some concept about. And then you go find a way to build that meaning for your students as is appropriate course to course, semester to semester. And that's gonna mean differential time allocations and that's gonna mean differential discussions. And that's gonna mean to a considerable extent differential mastery, but all of that is going to be superior to trying to prescribe it from the top down because as you mentioned, you cannot fix curriculum construction from the top. It can't be done. Now we do other stuff. Our second section is the more general interest section this time around uh, with a focus on SES, which is socioeconomic status, and that is usually a reference to considering the effects of poverty uh, or need whenever we're looking at educational topics. So to consider this, we're going to look at the emerging social neuroscience of SES by Michael Varnum uh, at Arizona State University. And do you want to tell us generally what they came up with? They took brain pictures. They took brain pictures. <laughs> so they put them in a big old machine that looked at where there was activity in their heads when they presented them with various problems, with various scenarios. And they saw some patterns that went beyond what I would have predicted would be unique depending on a low SES or a high SES status. There were several processes that were different, but there are a couple that I want to focus on for the purposes of our discussion. This is a synthesis of findings from several different uh, neuroscience experiments. They found, among other things, that individuals from lower SES were associated with their brains activating in regions that mirror other people doing activities. So if I see you doing a thing, regions of my brain will more strongly activate that are associated with me doing that thing than if I'm from a higher SES status. It's called the mirror effect. Does that suggest uh, greater synapse firing in terms of empathy? Was that the suggestion? Uh, I didn't take it to mean empathy. I took it to mean literally co-experiencing. So if I see somebody dribbling a basketball, I will activate what will it be like if I dribble a basketball? Not what is it like for them, what will it be like for me, is how I took that. Sounds like empathy to me. I believe you that there is overlap. <laughs> I believe that. Uh, they, didn't, they didn't build uh, behavioral narratives for these things. The focus of this paper, because uh, it's fairly brief, it's only eight pages. So the focus of this paper is really just, these are patterns. Somebody else deal with what they mean. I see. And we are that somebody else to some extent. <laughs> All right, then. 
the one that I actually want to talk about the most is a, a tendency or a heuristic that is not present in our lower SES students. They found that high SES individuals tend to infer characteristics of other subjects from limited behavioral evidence. They use the word spontaneously, but basically judgment. I judge quickly and, and fallaciously sometimes about the characteristics of others if I am from a higher SES, whereas individuals from a lower SES standpoint don't show that tendency. So they, uh, they remain open to making that judgment in the future as they collect more evidence. High SES status associated with greater wealth is also commensurate with greater control and agency. And when you have greater control and agency, you have uh, a greater ability to um, establish an, a predictable environment. And if you are creating an environment in which you can make predictions reliably because you are controlling the environment, then you develop a confidence in your ability to make those judgments. Whereas if you have less control of your environment, you uh, which would be uh, associated with lower SES status, then uh, as the environment is not within your control, there are more variations and possibilities and outcomes within that environment. And so uh, it would be disadvantage. You do not get the practice of assuming that your judgment is consistently accurate. Uh, that's good, and control is going to be a theme in this conversation about uh, SES status. There's a, there's a quote during the analysis of this paper that I think resonates, uh, resonates with me and connects with some past experience that I've had. Uh, there's the quote that says, uh, some of these findings uh, demonstrate it's usually believed, and there's usually this connotation of lower SES confers deficits or underdevelopedness of particular traits, and that's generally that's not well supported. That these characteristics are adaptations from different experiences, and instability of environment is an important characteristic that is different between various SES uh, strati of the population. So that pairs well with, there was actually, it was a presentation that I'm pretty sure we both sat in from our previous principal a number of years ago on poverty that really uh, shaped the way that I think about priorities for different SES um, categories of students. Because the when you think about possessions, when you think about assets, when you think about resources, what do I have in my life? What are what are the things that are the important tools and resources available to me? Uh, what was shared with me uh, by Dr. Weber, one of our previous principals who focused on poverty, uh, in his presentation he shared lowest SES students. They don't have many material things. That is that is how you end up in that category of lower SES. And so their greatest resources are people, are relationships. I have my mother, and I have my grandmother, and I have my three friends. And so if you were just ask them without context, what do you have? Their responses would be relationships. I, I know these people, and I can depend on these people to help me meet my various needs uh, at the various levels of Maslow's hierarchy. Whereas if you move up the SES ladder, when you get into the middle regions, 
it is you ask somebody in the middle SES echelons, what do you have? Their responses are materialistic. I have a house, I have a car, I have three guitars, I have two computers, whatever it is, their responses will be material because in those middle echelons, they're trying to accumulate things so that they can establish greater control in their environment and greater security in their future. Versus the highest echelons, uh, their responses are going to be uh, unique artifacts. How much do they have that is uniquely theirs and exclusive to the to from what other people can have? So I have I I own U.S. steel, which nobody else can have, and it's been in our family for four four generations, and I will pass it down to my offspring. We have this this heirloom that has been in our generation in our line for five generations and we protect it and we make sure nobody else can have it because it is uniquely ours. I have made this art piece that has been in our museum for two generations and we will pass it on. So legacy is important to them. The uniqueness of their line is is generally important to them. And that fits into this narrative because if my greatest resources are people, I have to make good judgments about people, especially in an unstable environment. Working under the assumption that we are not terrible people, this will work to our benefit. As teachers? As teachers. Yeah, I was just thinking that myself, that uh, if this pattern uh, is, I mean, if this is a consistent pattern, then in our classroom, we have an opportunity to leverage this in our attempts to close achievement gaps. the better relationship we can build with students of greater need, of of higher, uh, or, sorry, of lower SES status, the better relationships we can build, the better we can support and scaffold them to whatever post-secondary preparedness they have intended for themselves. And that's good because they are predisposed to be open to relationships as long as we maintain ourselves as consistent feedback givers. Exactly, and that's consistent with the data that's also reported in this study, uh, because it's important to note, to reinforce the idea that there's not a deficit in attention, is during their experimentation, they observed that in memory tests from their experiences, high and low SES participants had no difference. They are experiencing the same scenarios, and they do remember what happened just without any of the judgments that would come from higher SES students. Making something actionable out of this research, getting to our shoulds, comes from looking at another reference that they made further down in this paper. There's a general theme in the literature that students from lower SES status, uh, their performance on various neural tasks suggests that they have selective attention deficits. There's a general theme that lower SES have worse cognitive skills. And that's a that's a an interpretation that overlooks the adaptive nature of their brains and what they're doing in response to their environments and how poorly it pairs with what too many classrooms are expecting of them. When we start to think of it from the standpoint of adaptive skills, what we realize is they have greater attentional breadth. So they're used to responding to, they have adapted to responding to unstable environments. And so they maintain access to more stimuli coming from their environment compared to students who are used to more stable environments. That means 
these students stand to benefit even more from having the space to explore bigger concepts, the threshold concepts of our disciplines, as opposed to being forced to focus on what we are presenting to them moment to moment. There's an example of that that comes from a study done by Joe Bowler, The Many Colors of Algebra, The Impact of Equity-Focused Teaching Upon Student Learning and Engagement, that demonstrates that students participating in this summer course uh, intended to remediate a low achievement in math courses in a setting where the curriculum is responsive to student needs and provides space for student exploration of threshold math topics shows greater gains for students in the structured courses in which they enroll the following semester. So it's not just that they do well and respond strongly to the experience in the moment, they perform better in the future even when they're returned to the highly structured, highly sequenced classrooms from which they came. So we're not doing our lowest SES students any favors by providing them highly structured classrooms because man, they just got to get the fundamental concepts first. They are worse served in that environment compared to students of higher SES status. And so we can enclose some of that achievement gap by providing them the space to explore threshold concepts so that they can access all of the details and all of the experiences that are associated with seeing a big picture topic and asking questions as they become relevant to them. And now, for something completely different. We had our first comment on an episode, which is really exciting. And uh, Carol Williamson, thank you for providing some additional things to think about. Uh, we didn't spend, I don't know that we spent any time thinking about AVID in 008, but Advancement via Individual Determination is absolutely a program that's uh, present in many states across the country and is specifically designed to assist students who have declared an intent. And that is totally relevant to this conversation. And she shared a, a piece of literature for us to consider. Well, I haven't read that literature. The intent of the student matters regarding their success in those programs. Uh, right, intent looks like it matters. But what we don't know is there's, there's not a lot of experimental evidence available for how AVID actually impacts performance. And so even, even the... the action report I don't I don't know what the term for that literature is even the the piece of literature that she provided their actionable statement is it totally makes sense that avid would be supportive of this but we really need the experimental data to indicate whether that that supposition is consistent with reality because we don't know that right now uh, the support is theoretically consistent but not empirically confirmed yes. So listeners, if somebody else out there has some empirical evidence that they can share for us to consider, we really want it, uh, even if it's from some other state. We've talked about two, but maybe one more. Uh, or if there's, if you have some agency over designing some research, do it because we are looking for adding to the body of knowledge uh, related to AVID or other support programs that pair with students attempting to be successful in these dual enrollment courses. If you're hearing this and you've got contributions or feedback, we want them. I'm looking at you, Chris. I'm looking at you, Jesse. Get involved and let us know if you're listening and you've got thoughts because it's not a PLC without the C, and that C is all of you. So join us and contribute to the conversation because I want to have more conversations like this. 
I didn't like any of that. What did you think of the beer? Well, you know what? It, it, it actually changed quite a bit. The sensation of drinking this changed quite a bit during the recording. Um, the very first sip I had felt like really acidic and harsh and like dangerous. Uh, I didn't like it. And I was like, oh man, I'm going to have to drink this for two hours. But uh, that's not what I'm experiencing right now. Uh, it's it's a milk stout, and that means some particular things to me. But this is a particularly understated stout as far as I experience it. I didn't have those initial reactions. And maybe that's just because I'm still anchored at that oak-aged experience from last, from last month. Um, but uh, it's not unpleasant to me. But I'm not finding it to be a particularly rich experience either. Uh, so to me, this is uh, it has grown on me. Uh, and I have grown comfortable with it, uh, but it took me a little bit of time, and I think this is a fine stout, uh, and uh, I can uh, I would drink it again. Well, that just happened. Yeah. Until Thanks. next time. Struggle well. And discuss research. <laughs>